right, welcome again. My name is Paul Seiver. Uh, we are in week five of our summon, ser- summon sermon, summer sermon series called Not Just Another Story, where we're kind of looking at different stories that Jesus tells in the Gospels and how he flips them on their head, how they're not just another story, how he's not just another teacher. And so um, I, if you're, if you're, I know the pressing question on everyone's mind right now is actually, what do I look like when I attend a wedding? And I actually have that answer for you if you look there. So that's me. Uh, that's what I look like. And when I attend a wedding, I look generally confused and lost. Uh, I think I have what's called like resting confused face. I just look, is that guy okay? Is he, what's going on with him? But so uh, the reason I put this up there, somebody sent me a bunch of pictures of me at a wedding. Uh, now, granted, I am filling something out. There was like a little desktop game there, but I, so I wasn't that confused. And I do know this. I do know when you're like in the ceremony, like at the church or at the venue, smile the whole time. Because if like the bride's walking by and you're like, hmm, right? No, one's, no one wants to see that in the photo later. They want you to be like, wow, like just so. But after at a reception, this is what I look like. And the reason I put this up there is we were having a conversation at our table about movies or TV moments that make us cry. And so just take a second right now. Think about maybe the last time you cried at a movie. For some, it was like yesterday. And for others, they're like, maybe never I'm a robot. Um, maybe the last movie or TV show that got you to cry. I did, though, ask um, ChatGPT to come up with a list. And so ChatGPT brought a couple. Some of these are like a little more, if you're a millennial, these would maybe right in there. So Land Before Time, if you've seen this one. Uh, in this one, the, the, uh, the mom dies pretty dramatically. It's, uh, okay, all right. Uh, that was one of the ones that makes people cry. Another movie that makes people cry, The Lion King. Uh, now, if you're familiar, I'm going to spoil it for you. In this movie, the dad dies. I don't know why, and this joke's been made before, but I don't know why they felt like kids that age just really needed to watch movies about their parents dying. You need, this is what you need as a kid. You need to be aware that at some point, your mom or dad might die. Uh, but that's what we got. That was our movies there. Uh, the Green Mile, people familiar with this one? Uh, Stephen King novel that became a movie with Tom Hanks and and Michael Clark Duncan plays John Coffey, and he, he ultimately dies as well. He's put to death. Um, another one, uh, maybe for the younger crowd, I don't know, The Fault in Our Stars. I have not seen this movie. This is one of the movies that makes people cry the most. I watched one clip this week on YouTube, and I was bawling. So this, it will get you if you have a heart. If you don't, you'll be fine. Uh, so The Fault in Our Stars, uh, romance, com- rom- not a comedy, romance kind of about these two that have cancer and it's just very dramatic and intense. And, uh, and then lastly, last movie that they said, that ChatGPT said makes people cry, Titanic. Um, probably crying because she, Jack could have lived, but uh, here we are. Uh, but I do have one, this is what I shared at the table, the last movie that made me sob, like bawling my eyes out, was actually this one, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. If anyone remembers Homeward Bound, 1994, a Disney movie, but the, the pets go, they, they move, the family moves, each kid kind of had their own pet. And the family moves and the, the animals get lost and they have to journey to find the family in like a couple states over at uh, and uh, it's, it, this, I'll explain later in this message why this had me weeping and sobbing. But uh, yeah, Disney movies, they'll make you cry. So again, we're, 
We're looking at not just another story, and this week we're looking at the story of something greater. And so if you're following along in your Bible, we'll also have the words up on the screen. We're looking at Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke, right there, kind of in the middle. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, very short section we're going to look at. Uh, Just for context before we get into our passage, here's what's happening in Luke chapter 11. Jesus is on the scene. He's doing things. He's being Jesus. And uh, at one point he does this, right in Luke 11, verse 14, it says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Okay, so there's a couple of things going on here. He drives out, there's a guy who can't speak. Jesus goes to that guy, drives out the demon, and now the guy can speak. It's a, it's a miracle, right? It's unbelievable. And right away, they're like, I think he did this by the devil. And, and what we actually get in between our passage and this passage is Jesus saying, okay, a house divided cannot stand. Why would I drive out demons by the power of the devil? Let's think about this, people. But we want to cl- clue in big time on this idea of a sign. So verse 16 says, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. A sign is all throughout the Old Testament especially. They're they're these kind of prove it moments where you show by doing what you do that you have divine authority. Classic example, Moses goes to the, sees the burning bush and talks to God. And he's like, "Uh, okay, you're sending me to the people of Israel, but how will they know I'm sent from you? And he's like, okay throw that staff down and it became a snake. He's like, okay, if that doesn't prove it, put your hand in your cloak, pull out a leprous hand uh, and then put it back in and then pull it back out and you have your normal hand again. If they don't, they'll believe those signs. Okay, so these signs are these authority confirming things that happen. And they're saying, when they ask this, they're saying prove that you have this authority from heaven to cast out demons. So this is a big deal. All right, let's get to our passage, Luke Chapter 11, verse 29 through 32 says this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south, or other things will say the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is now here. And so again, we're doing the story of something greater. We're really grabbing onto Jesus saying something greater than Solomon is here, something greater than then Jonah is here. Real quick, though, we look at this passage. <laughs> Jesus did not speak for popularity. Uh, and I think we can see that when, when the crowds were increasing. So, uh, so this is Luke giving us some details. The crowds are increasing. More and more people are flocking to Jesus. And the first thing he says is, you're evil. Uh, no, this generation is an evil generation. So I don't know if he was always trying to just be popular. But all right, so We can add some context, though. One of the things we do when we read the Bible is called integration. We say, okay, I know this story. Where else does this story or this theme have have representation in the Bible? And so 
This story actually is in two other gospels in different ways. So it's in uh, the gospel according to Matthew, a different account of Jesus that uh, says, it takes different angles, but says this in verse 38 of chapter 12, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And now here's where we get a little more clarity on what Jesus is getting at. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear, to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So that's Matthew's take on this story, and he adds a little context. of, uh, And then in Mark, in Mark's gospel, we get it this way. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And so we get kind of those three different accounts. Obviously, we see from the Luke and the Matthew account that, that no sign isn't no sign. It means the sign of Jonah is going to be given. But we've got to ask why, if this is something, if, if signs and asking for signs is something that is all throughout the Old Testament, that God's always shown signs to his people to prove authority for his prophets, for people like Moses, why is Jesus now saying, when you ask for a sign, you're actually evil, you're wicked, it's wrong? And for that, I actually want to look at a little passage in John chapter 6, another gospel account. Uh, a few verses here, so we're going to look at verse 26 and then 29 through 30 of a little interaction Jesus is having with some people in John chapter 6. So he says, he's, he's just, for context, he's just done the fishes and the loaves. He's just done a miracle. He's fed people with, with miraculous bread and fish. And he says to them, when they come follow him more. He says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he's saying, you came, you followed, you came with me, not because you thought there was divine activity that I might be from God, that I might be doing something new, but just because I met your earthly need. Your interest in me was not spiritual, it was physical. You just wanted me to be a part of your life so that I could bless your earthly life. And then he goes on in verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So he's saying, here's what, here's what matters, believing, faith, looking to me in faith. This is what he's saying. This is, he's like, this is the big deal. This is the important thing. What you have to do is look to me and believe and look what happens in verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? How is this an evil generation? How is this wickedness? Because no matter what he's doing for signs, they're not looking to him in faith. He's proving himself over and over again. In this passage, he just fed people miraculously, very similar to how God fed people in the wilderness in the Old Testament with manna. And in fact, he's going to go on here to say, I am the bread of life, not something material that you need. You need 
something spiritual. You need a savior. In our passage in Luke, he just healed the guy that couldn't speak and they're like, he's from the devil, right? They're missing it. Prove it, God. What will you do? That's what we say to God when we're asking for signs. We'll say, I could, okay, God, I maybe could follow you. I maybe could submit to the things you say in your scriptures if you give me this relationship. If my kids obey me and listen to me, if I get that next promotion, if we get into this house, then I'll, then I'll start giving you kind of stuff from me. But God says something different. That we, when we say, God, prove yourself to me, we're actually in the wrong. Jesus here is saying signs aren't enough for people. When they're standing right there, he's saying what is asked of you is to believe. So that's where we're going today. We'll look at a few things. How can Jesus say something greater than Jonah is here? How can Jesus say something greater than Solomon is here? And what does it look like to see Jesus clearly when he's right in front of us? To stop making these demands, to have proof for our faith from actually even the Old Testament. And so again, back to our passage one more time. Luke 11, 29 through 32 says this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's reading the Bible. He's interpreting the story in a very specific way. And so actually, I want to get into it by starting with what he's not doing. Here's how he's not thinking about Jonah and the queen of Sheba and about the Ninevites and about Solomon. He's not thinking about them in what can sometimes be called a hero's and villains approach. I looked this up, and there actually are Bible translations for kind of teenage age kids that are called the Heroes and Villains Bible. And I'm just going to say, if you're reading your Bible this way, you're not reading the story correctly. And here's why. When we so here's what I mean. We look back, we look at stories like Jonah and Daniel and Esther in the Old Testament, and we say, okay, what I need to do is I need to be brave like Daniel. I need to advocate for others like Esther. I need to be courageous like, I need to have faith like Moses, right? We might say those things. And when we do that, or I need to not be like, or I need to be strong like Samson. I need to not be like uh, Naaman or, or whoever, right? We're reading reference of super obscure name for people, all right? But we're not reading. When we do that, though, we're reading in a very human-centered way. We're saying this Old Testament is actually about me and what I need to do. And we actually turn it very moralistic. We get into like, again, I gotta be brave like Daniel, strong like Samson. Also, okay, here's where this falls apart, right? Be strong like Samson. Samson wasn't a good dude. If you go back and read the Old Testament, he was not very obedient to God. He's not a super great moral example. And if we look at even our own lives, we're pretty complex. Sometimes we do good things. Oftentimes we're not nice. 
Uh, all right, reading this heroes and villains approach also fragments the Bible. It turns these things into little sections of story instead of looking at the whole picture. And because it does that, it is not big on Jesus. When I, when I read the Bible and say, be brave like Daniel, where's Jesus? He's like on the side, he's not even involved, which I might miss then the original meaning, much less the greater meaning. And in the end, it's, it's too individualistic. But we get this a lot. You might have grown up, you might still read the Bible this way. I just got to learn more lessons from the Old Testament and change my life based on those. And we looked into the Bible as another source of wisdom instead of a story about Jesus. And so here's then how Jesus is reading the story. If the Old Testament's not about learning lessons to make you a better person, what is it about? And we actually get this from Luke chapter 24. In this context of this passage, uh, Jesus has, has died and actually rose again. And he's walking with some people on the road to Emmaus, the city, and, he, and they don't know he's risen again. And they're just downcast. I don't know. I don't know what's happened. And he comes up and like just appears to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. And then he like says, it's me, Jesus. That's kind of paraphrase. <laughs> Verse 25 says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And now here's Jesus' lens for reading the Bible. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that just means the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So beginning with the Old Testament, starting at the very beginning, Moses, the first five books of the Bible, all through the prophets, everything that's written, he's saying, here's how you gotta read this. It's all about me. And he actually gives them the ability to see that. When I was in uh, sports, played a lot of sports growing up, and we were always told, even though we never had names on the back of our jersey, because we weren't like professional sports teams, so we just had jerseys with a number on the back, but we were always told it's about the name on the front of the jersey, right? So it's about the Merrill Blue Jays. It's not about Paul Stiver, right? That's, I played for the Blue Jays. Any Blue Jays in here? No, okay, <laughs> so, right? But we were always told by our coaches it's about the name on the front of the jersey. What Jesus is saying here in Luke 25 is it's actually about the name on the back of the jersey. He's saying the whole story is all about me. Number 33 is probably what he played as, I don't know. Uh, but right, he's saying the whole Bible, everything, every page, Old Testament, New Testament, is about me. That's how he's reading the story. Or to look at it another way from National Treasure, Jesus puts on the glasses that and shows us when we want to read the Bible correctly, we need the Benjamin Gates glasses that allow us to see, and those glasses are Jesus. He's the lens by which the whole Bible becomes clear. He's the, that's why he can say something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon. We'll get into that. But then that causes us to read our Bible left to right, like normal, like any book, right? We start in Genesis, and we read through Revelation, but we interpret or we come to understand the Bible most clearly by putting on our Jesus glasses and actually interpreting it right to left. In other words, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus instead of a heroes and villains approach. That's what he's doing in this passage. This is called biblical typology. When he's saying I'm greater than Solomon, I'm greater than Jonah, he's saying I'm a type of these two. I'm the one who was the fulfillment of these two. So for a definition, it says a type is a real person, event, or thing 
that God has ordained as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus's person and work. Okay, so this can be a person. Moses, for example, is a prophet that comes and leads God's people out of uh, oppression. And, and then Jesus comes and, and similarly leads God's people out of oppression. The difference there being uh, there's a move from a physical reality of Moses leaving people out of actual slavery to a spiritual reality of Jesus leading us out of slavery to sin. Uh, we see the Passover lamb, right, as a thing that, that is shown greater in Jesus, our true Passover lamb, the Bible describes him as. Events like the Day of Atonement foreshadow or, or predict the cross. That's what a type is. That's how Jesus is reading the Bible. And I have to tell you this, reading the Bible this way, as with Jesus as the hero and everyone else in relation to that, will make you less weird, Note I said less weird. You're still going to be pretty weird, but you'll be less weird, right? Because I'm not going back and just saying, oh, the Old Testament must be about this for me. I'm looking for Jesus as the hero. And by nature, that makes us less weird. But let's do it. Let's see if there is, if Jesus is something greater than Jonah. And I have to put this slide up here with the, like very childish depiction, like child depiction of Jonah. So here's the story of Jonah in a nutshell, right? He's He's called by God to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites, these evil people that are Gentiles, they're not Jewish. Uh, he hates them, and he actually runs away from God. He gets on a ship, and that's the first picture there. He gets thrown off the ship. God swallows him up by a whale, and then he, he finally realizes how dark things have gotten in this belly of a whale. He prays. The whale, God says, spits him out, and then he does. He goes to the people of Nineveh and preaches a message to them. And we'll look at the actual scriptures for this. The reason I did this slide, though, is because we often read the Old Testament or we say, those stories are for kids. That's Sunday school lessons. That's not for us. Or maybe it's just boring. But I think there's something more we can see, something greater than Jonah. So let's look at Jonah a little bit, starting in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So God sees this people who are, are in wickedness and he says, I want you to actually go to them, Jonah, and tell them that they must repent. And Jonah runs, he flees from the Lord. So what happens in verse 17? Now the Lord provided a heat. So he gets thrown overboard by these guys, that's a real, I didn't put this in here, but he gets thrown overboard by the ship that he's on because they realize he's the reason that they're in a storm. And it says, now the Lord, he's thrown overboard, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, so Jonah is in this fish and then it says, the Lord commanded the fish, this is now after Jonah has prayed, it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Uh, I didn't realize vomit was in there. There you go, vomit reference in the sermon, but it does, it spits him out onto dry land. Jonah has been in the belly of the fish. He prays for deliverance. God delivers him, spits him out of this whale as it were. And now chapter three says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, something different happens. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So it's kind of a remarkable scene. It's this three-mile journey city, this huge city. Jonah just walks a mile in and says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people hear it and they're like, oh my gosh, we believe this message. Immediately they fast, they put on sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. They said, we're guilty of sin. In fact, they, they go so far as to the king declares a fast even for the animals they own. They're so humbled and repentant. And the king says, who knows, maybe God will have mercy. And so Matthew's section really helps us understand the, this, all of this story. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew's giving us insight here. He's showing us how Jonah is actually a type of Jesus. There's going to be contrast. And what here we see is that Jonah was dead, as it were, in the belly of a huge fish and was delivered from death. And now Jesus is saying, here's how you read the story then. Read it as if I, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, as if I will die and be delivered from death. So when he says something greater than Jonah is here, we get a few contrasts that we can see just from going back then with our Jesus lens on and looking at the story of Jonah through that lens. So here's just a few things. They're both prophets. They're both sent by God, but they have different messages. Some of these contrasts can be positive. Some can be negative. Jonah has a message of a finger point, right? He says, you're evil, repent. Jesus comes with a message of grace, of faith in him as the Messiah. Jonah is an angry, reluctant prophet who doesn't want to go to people so that they might be saved. Jesus is a prophet willing and delighted to go to people so that they might be saved. Jonah made haste to flee from God. Luke actually tells us Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jonah was delivered from death, being spit out of the whale. Jesus was not delivered from death. He actually does die and yet was delivered, as it were, in his resurrection. Jonah, the guilty one who was cast overboard, was brought out of the depths by God. Jesus is the innocent one who was cast into the depths for us. So is Jesus something greater than Jonah? Absolutely. And he's saying, look at that story and actually believe in me. As he was delivered, so will I be delivered. But therefore, you must respond to me in faith. You must stop demanding signs. All right, let's look at another one. Let's look at something, something greater than Solomon. Jesus, again, in this passage, tells us something greater than Solomon is here. So let's look at this with the story of the Queen of Sheba. Again, kind of a smaller story in the Old Testament, but a little context here. Solomon is a king uh, he's the son of David and Bathsheba. He comes as the king after David. He's a big deal, right? We're kind of familiar with Solomon and the famous story about how the, the child, who's the child belong to, and he says, split it in two to reveal the true mother of the child. 
He's this wise man. He's a king. He actually builds the temple for God. And then he builds his own house a little bigger. Okay, keep it up with the Joneses. Not our Joneses, other Joneses. But uh, all right, we have some Joneses here. Uh, right? But in this passage, this is actually the height of Solomon's powers. 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba, who is a queen in Africa, who is uh, a big deal, comes to Solomon. In 1 Kings 10, it says this. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord. She was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me, in wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And in her response, it says, And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And then just closing the story, it says, Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and there were And from there, they brought great cargoes of almagwood, whatever that is, it feels made up, and precious stones. The king used the almagwood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almagwood has never been imported or seen since that day. So actually, she contributes to the building of the temple. And then it says, now, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned home with her retinue to her own country. Quite a story. We're going to look more at her response to Solomon in a second. But one thing we have to see is she's standing there. She's seeing all, she comes to Solomon in pomp, right? She's a big deal. She sees him and she says, wow, you're a pretty big deal. But she doesn't stop there. In verse 9, right, she says, praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. She says, I I can't actually stop at just praising you for your goodness because your goodness comes from another. So praise God for who even you are, but really praise him for who he is. But is is this something greater than Solomon? Let's look at this. Let's compare Jesus and Solomon a little bit. Both are kings in the line of David. Both are kings in the line of David. However, Solomon, we actually saw the height of Solomon's ministry right there because right after that, 
He leads the people into exile. Solomon's heart goes astray. Jesus remains faithful. Solomon's wisdom is derivative, meaning he gets it from another. He gets it from God. 1 Corinthians 1 is actually going to tell us Jesus is wisdom. He doesn't get wisdom. He is wisdom. Solomon's, again, Solomon's greatness was from God. Jesus's greatness is because he is God. Are we sensing a theme maybe here of this typology? Solomon builds a temple. Jesus is the temple, right? Solomon gains power in a bloody coup. Jesus actually comes into power. He receives his authority through his own bloody death. Now, here's the thing. What we just did was typology. We're reading the story as Jesus does. We're putting on the lens of Jesus and going back even into the Old Testament. So instead of coming out saying, all right, I've got to be wise like Solomon, we come out saying, wow, I have one who has come as wisdom from God to save someone as lowly as me. Praise be to God. We can read our Bibles this way. We can read our Bibles as though the story is all about Jesus. And when we do this, that's how we ask, how is this not just another story? When we do this, here's the thing. When you read the Bible as, as about Jesus, guess what it's going to confront? The way that you make everything all about you. The way that we always put ourselves as the hero of our own story. Because if Jesus is the hero of the story, that means we aren't. So let's look again now at the response that's desired. If I'm not the hero of the story, what does responding to Jesus look like? So I want to look at, again, he said, looking for signs is evil. And then he highlights these two responses, the queen of Sheba and the, and the people of Nineveh. It says again this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is now here. If you are a list person, then you're loving this sermon, because I have yet another list. Let's look at the faith responses of these two groups as Jesus describes them. We've got the Ninevites, these evil Gentile people who were sought by God. We've got the Queen of Sheba, this, this woman of splendor and pomp, who comes to, right? So we've got a lowly people and someone who's a big deal. We've got a people who are sought by God, the Ninevites, and someone who comes seeking answers. Both of them respond in faith. The Ninevites respond to a very few words. They get just 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown and they're like, yup, we believe it. That's, that's, I think, paraphrase again. The queen of Sheba comes and tests all these questions. Here's a, this and this and this. And every time, answers. The, the people of Nineveh come with fear. The queen of Sheba with reverence. Both ways of having faith. The people of Nineveh repent immediately, showing that they've understood this reality about God and are responding in faith. She recognizes Solomon's greatness. The people of Nineveh say, God may turn and relent. They have trust in God's mercy. She similarly blesses God instead of Solomon's greatness. She sees that he has greatness, but that it's come from another, and she turns and praises God. What are we learning from these responses? What is Jesus calling us to understand? He's saying, 
what stands out about both of these groups, whether lowly and humble or proud and pompous, a big deal, you need to have faith in Jesus. He's saying, when I'm standing right in front of you, it's not about me proving myself to you with signs. It's not about me saying just the right words for you with wisdom. That it's about you responding to me in faith. You have to let me be something greater than you. You have to come to me in faith. In fact, it's the only way. Again, he goes back and says, this is the sign from Matthew 12, 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's saying, what you need to understand more than anything is that Jesus has come to live a perfect life, to die condemned as a lawless sinner in your place, and to rise again having conquered death. He's saying that's what you need to believe in. That's what you need to understand. And when we do this, this is not just another story. And Jesus is not just another teacher, another person we could maybe add to our faith repertoire, our wisdom. I follow a couple influencers and then I go Jesus for some stuff. No, no, no. He is an exclusive savior. You are either in or out with Jesus. And the way to be in is not to prove ourselves Or to be impressive, the way to be in is through faith. He's saying, this is all about me. He's saying, what you need to understand is actually the ultimate sign of my grace, which is resurrection. Which going back now to homeward bound is why this made me sob. Okay, so this is the end scene of homeward bound. The family is in their new home. They're all out in their backyard. There's three pets. There's Chance, the youngest kid's dog. There's Sassy, the girl's cat, and then there's Shadow, Peter's dog. Shadow was the oldest. And this is like a little path in their backyard that leads into their house. And it's this miraculous scene at the end of the movie. They thought their pets were gone. And here comes Chance to the little kid, and he rejoices. My dog is back. And then Sassy, the cat, comes to the girl, and a cat... I can't imagine in reality a cat would ever run to its owner. That's not how cats operate, but in this movie it does. Okay? All right, now, we see Shadow emerging, but that's not what you see in the movie. In the movie, Peter, the oldest son, is standing there. He watches his siblings. They get their pets back. But we don't see Shadow. There's no, nothing. No noise, Nothing. And it cuts, the camera cuts to Peter, and he just says, he was old. It was just too hard. It was just too long. He couldn't make it. And you can feel the pain that Peter has in this moment. And then you hear a bark. Shadow comes limping off up the path. And the dogs speak in the movie, suspend reality for a second. And he says, Peter. That's my best. Peter. And Peter goes, Shadow. Right? They're reunited. Story uniquely moves us. And this one uniquely moves me and maybe you because it's resurrection. It's derivative of the true story. 
shadow, as it were, comes back to life, out of death, to Peter. And Jesus is telling us, here's what you need to believe. You need to believe that I am going to die and rise again. And now, that's what's before the cross, on this side of the cross, we need to believe The story, the story of our lives is not about us, but it is about that moment when our Savior walked out of the grave. That is what our faith is in. He's saying the only way to respond to that is faith. You can't earn a resurrection, and you can't do it yourself. This is the story that moves us. This is what gets me. Every one of those other stories, all those movies, The Fault in Our Stars, The Titanic, Lamb before time, Lion King, why do they move us? Because of death. But the true story moves us because out of death comes life. And the only way to be in on that true story is to die. We need to put our faith in Jesus to die to self and believe in him. In fact, this is the only way to come to faith, is to come to the end of ourselves. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it this way, starting in verse 22. He says, there are two kinds of approaches to Jesus that miss it. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Here's how the Apostle Paul right here is confirming for us how to read the true story. He's saying, no matter how foolish it sounds, the way for you to be saved, to enter into true life, is through a crucified Messiah, through a crucified Savior, through a King who dies. You have to be united to him through faith. He's saying, if you want God through signs or wisdom, that's a self-salvation project and that's going to fail. The way in is through this message of foolishness, this message of the cross. One commentary says, to the unbelieving Jew, a crucified Messiah, again, a crucified king, is the epitome of weakness and defeat, a flat-out contradiction and a stumbling block that goes against all expectations of a royal conquering king. Similarly, to the Greeks, distinguished by their quest for wisdom, the notion of an executed criminal as the locus of God's wisdom amounted to sheer Nonsense. The stumbling block and foolishness language ascribed to Christ and his crucifixion is difficult for the modern Christian to grasp, but we have to keep in mind how the proclamation of an executed criminal as good news would have played out in the first century context to the Jew with fervent messianic, again, expecting a king from God, and to the Greek who coveted honor, esteem, and success. So Jesus comes as a king we don't expect, not to rule in this massive pomp, but to die. Not to be sought by, not for us to achieve Jesus by our honor and our success, but rather he comes giving up honor and, and dying on a cross for us that we actually have to give up ourselves, our own attempts at glory to receive him by faith. That the end of ourselves is holy ground. That's what the message of the cross is telling us. For me, it happened, I remember a quick story here. This is Comstock Hall on the west, east bank of UVM campus. I went to college a long time ago. Okay, I don't remember everything. Uh, I, was, I, my, I was in Comstock Hall my freshman year of college. 
And uh, right to the side there is a little sitting, that's kind of a, you can sit there. Uh, it's kind of a platform there. And when I came to college, I didn't really have faith in Christ when I came to college. And, and when I started taking some classes, that even more pushed me away from faith. Uh, and, but I still had some belief in God. And I remember it was nighttime. And I was sitting in Comstock Hall right there. And I was smoking a cigarette because I was cooler back then. Uh, <laughs> smoking a cigarette. And I looked up to the sky and I said, God, if you exist, you have to prove it to me. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was 17 at the time. Ten years later, I was sitting in a pew at Hope Community Church, our, one of our, our downtown location, and I was preached the message of the cross. I was told, actually, it was the parable of the lost sheep and that God delights over a sinner who repents. And my question of, God, you have to prove yourself to me, he finally did. He waited 10 years to do it, but he did it. But he did it not through giving me a sign. He did it through the message of the cross. He said, here's who I am. I am the God who saves sinners through the death of my son. Believe in me, and by God's grace, that day in that pew, I believed. The reason I say that is it's very easy in life. And for, so I had 10 years. In those 10 years, I did everything I could to look for life, relationships, substances, new jobs, uh, approval of different people. If they, just, if they just approve of me, I'll be okay. Making it on my own in something. I tried a million things to make it on my own, and every time I failed, every attempt at self-salvation came up short to where it led me to be in very dark depressions. And then again, at age 27, instead of a sign, God told me this message of the cross. And the reason I bring all that up is if you're sitting in here and you're thinking you're going to figure it out by life hacks and wisdom, you're going to follow the next right influencer and you're going to read the next self-help book, are you just waiting on God to prove himself to you by giving you that relationship or that house or that job or that parent's love or those obedient kids? I think we're missing it. The real story Jesus is telling us is about him as the hero, about his cross. And only when we come to the end of ourselves and see him as our only hope, as our only hope for deliverance and rescue, do we actually experience this change. And we actually are changed. I have a few things here. I thought about five ways that when you know you're reading the story correctly with Jesus as the hero. The first one, obedience to God. Your obedience is not then, you know, for me, when the reason I wanted God to leave me alone is I wanted to do whatever I wanted. I wanted to sin and sin boldly, and I didn't want to feel bad about it. So that's kind of more the irreligious way, but we can very similarly, like in the passage we read in Luke, be very close to God and yet miss him completely. Demanding signs or trying to prove our own righteousness through our religion. But in the gospel, when we're reading the story correctly, we realize my obedience to God has been accomplished by Christ. And I actually now I'm set free. I get to do what he's asking of me. I, I go to his word longing for life and seeing it in him. Second, my identity is not based on my own ability or my own goodness, how much I can achieve, what I can pull off in life, 
how many likes I get on social media. My identity is founded in Christ and what he has accomplished for me. And that changes everything about how I approach a day to day. Third, my joy. Friends, we, if you think about it, one common way to live through life is just trying to get to the next moment of happiness. When you put your faith in Christ, when you're reading the story correctly, your joy cannot be taken from you. Even in the hardest of circumstances, you will have joy. Your joy will not be dependent on your circumstances. Fourth, community. You'll be transformed. One of the biggest problems in our society today is loneliness and isolation. When you're okay in Jesus, when you are seeing him as the hero of your story, you actually are willing to put yourself out there. You're willing to open yourself up to friends and say, I'm messed up and I need help. You know why? Because they aren't going to sit there and judge you because they're in the same boat. We don't have to be isolated. Jesus invites us not only to his acceptance, but also to community. And lastly, hopefulness. Many of us struggle with anxiety. Hope is anxiety with faith, right? Hope is flip anxiety on its head. And when my faith is in Christ, when I'm seeing the story correctly, I know he's walked out of the grave. So no matter what happens to me, I have hope. My life is not dependent on my circumstances. I have belief that God might do something miraculous. So as we close here, just if you're coming in here and this is how you're evaluating self, <laughs> you're probably in a good spot. If you're coming in here today, this is the question, right? Do you think you've got this? If you came in here today and you're like, I've got this, I'll figure out, I got the next thing. And if I can just get to that, if I can pull that off, get that degree, that relationship, then I'll be all right. If we come in here thinking I've got this, we're missing out on Jesus. Jesus is the hero. He's the savior of those who are tired of self-salvation projects, who are exhausted by the way that we keep hurting other people, the way we keep not living up to our own standards for ourselves the way that we keep putting un, unmeetable expectations on others, asking way too much of them. For those who are sick of compiling more wisdom so that they, we might one day figure it out, Jesus is the savior for us. For those who are coming in here today desirous of rescue, weary, wanting rest, Jesus is the hero. He's the hero who is glad to die for you. He's saying the whole story is not about you. He's saying the more you read the story about you, the more tired you're going to become. The more you see me as your hero, the more you see my cross and my resurrection as good news, the more you're going to enjoy true life. But here's the good news. He is waiting at, for us at the end of our failure. The holy ground that is the end of ourself is where we come to faith in Jesus, where we say, I need that rescue. And we walk, we stop running and we walk right into the open arms of God. Because the passage shows us he is a savior who is not reluctant. He delights in saving sinners. That's what moved me all those years ago. And I hope it's the story that moves us today. So as we close, just two questions. Maybe for you, this is the first time you're hearing of this. Is the message of the cross right now today for you foolishness or power? Is that just a ridiculous thing that a king would die, that God would die for sinners? Or is it your only hope? And if you have, if you, let's say you have, you say, all right, I have put my faith in Jesus. I believe this. 
There's a million ways we still need to come back to this story. This is how we are moved. We're moved by story. So let's be moved by the story of someone greater, the Savior who is not reluctant, the King who is glad to die, our Rescuer. We get the chance to believe in that afresh. We're actually going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to practice communion. Here at Hope, we practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We only ask that you would put your faith in Jesus, this exclusive Savior, that he is your hero. And if that's the case, we'd love to have you take communion with us. What this does is reminds us of the story. Communion reminds us of our king who took on flesh, his body, the bread, was broken for us, and who shed his blood, the juice, dying for us. And when we encounter that, the more we encounter that, the more we experience change, the more the story moves us to be like him. So let's be moved by the story of someone greater. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come back up, and we get to sing to the one who has died and risen for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this good news that you sent your son with a message of grace, that we actually can come to know you not by proving ourselves to you or you proving yourself to us, but by looking to our crucified king, the one who has come and lived and died and, and lives again. God, that is good news. God, so I pray that we would cling to that. We would sing to you as though that is our only hope, that you have rescued us because you have. If our faith is in you, we are secure. You are the Father who, who runs to us with open arms, who delights in us, and who is glad to save. So God, I pray as we worship you now and as we go from the, this place, that Jesus, you would become the hero of our story all the more, that you would increase and we would decrease. God, be so kind, be so merciful as to make much of yourself now in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.